Welcome to the 420th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Les Egerton, author of the new novel, Hard Times. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Les Edgerton, author of the new novel, Hard Times. Les is the author of more than 20 books, including Adrenaline Junkie, Bomb, The Genuine, and many others. His work has been nominated for or awarded the Pushcart Prize, O. Henry Award, Penn Faulkner Award, Derringer Award, Spine Tingler Magazine Thriller of the Year, the Edgar Allan Poe Award, and many others. Les, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Jeff. I'm glad to be here, man. Great. Well, if someone hasn't heard about your novel, Hard Times, yet, how would you describe the novel? Oh, it's just a a fluffy walk in the park. No, it's pretty dark stuff. I'm kind of known as a noir writer, and this is probably the height of it right here. It's a a woman, yummy, what do you want me to give? You want me to give a kind of full-blown synopsis? Yeah, sure. That'd be great. Yep. It's uh, It starts out with a woman, Amelia, who's, she's hard scrabble folks. They live in East Texas where I grew up, a little north of where I, I grew up on the Gulf. This is up a little further north toward the big thicket. But uh, they're very poor people, and it's set in the, during the Depression around the late 30s or early 30s. And uh, she has... Her father makes her marry a, a neighbor boy that he likes that raped her, and she's in love with another kid, but uh, she has to do what her father tells her. Just a shortcut through some of it. They have a real hard life and everything, but during a drought, he takes off for town supposedly to get work, but he's an alcoholic, and he's gone for a long time, and she knows what happened. He's an alcoholic, and he probably got thrown in jail for drinking, which is what happened. And it gets down to the point where one of the kids dies, the baby, and they had to put him in a pie safe because of the smell. And they can't go outside because his hunting dogs won't let him out. They're starving too. And she ends up having to having to cut her hand off to try to feed her kids. And then there's another major character that comes along, Lucius, uh, a black guy from Detroit that uh, was in New Orleans and, and killed a cop there and is on the run. And by accident, he finds her place, and he helps her through some tough times and everything. That I'm not good at doing synopsis, so I hopefully that'll attract somebody. Yeah, that that sounds very uplifting. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I have to go lucky uh, fairy tale. So definitely a noir novel. Yeah, Do, I, I'm curious. Can you remember the original idea that led you to sit down and start working on hard times? I, yeah, kind of. I remember writing. I wrote this when I was about twelve. I this is taken from two stories, two short stories in my first collection, Monday's Meal. And I remember laying on the couch. I was crippled. I had ingrown toenails, which doesn't sound bad, but they almost led to gangrene. I almost lost my legs. But anyway, I, I remember when I was 12, I started writing this story. I was a precocious kid. And I called, I, I, the only thing I changed was the title. Then I wrote it as, it was called A Mother's Love. And that was pretty sappy, which I didn't realize at the time. And what happened was my agent, Lana Duranco, from, she's got offices in Dublin and Paris. She read the story. She said, told me a couple of years ago, she had less the stories just haunted me. She says, I think if you can develop it into a novel, you can maybe rival Carmack McCarthy. 
And so I don't know if I did or not. I gave my best shot. Some people think I have, and I don't know. It'll depend on the public if I have or not. But it's a pretty bleak novel. But it ends up good. They all live happily ever after, at least the ones that survive do. Well, you've written many novels and screenplays. Can you remember the first fiction that you ever wrote? You mentioned writing this at 12. Was this the first thing you ever wrote or had you written things before that? No, I I, uh, actually taught myself to read when I was four or five. And after I read my first book, I thought I can write better than this. And I started writing my first book. I couldn't at the time, but now I can. But no, I knew right then that's all I ever that's been my only ambition my entire life since I was four or five years old is to be a writer, and I've written ever since. Can you tell us or can you remember what it was like when you wrote and eventually got your first novel published? Oh, sure. I wrote for a long time. I lost a lot of work because I, I was an outlaw. Well, I wouldn't when I was an outlaw, and I ended up in prison for a couple of years. And I wrote several novels when I was there, but when I left, they confiscated them, and I couldn't take them with me, so I had to rewrite them. But uh, I'd written novels before I got published. My first novel was a semi-autobiographical novel, which most first novels are, called The Death of Tarpons. And uh, University of North Texas Press published it, and it's out of pr- it went out of print because they sold out. And then Be Times Books in, in uh, England, or Ireland, I'm sorry, took it, and it's in print with them now. But I've, I have half Simers, Jeff, so I forgot the gist of the question. <laughs> oh, I didn't. Uh, I I knew how to write, but I didn't know how to get published. Right. We didn't have the internet then, and uh, you had to. You just found out things little by little as you went. And today's writers really have it pretty easy compared to the way it used to be back in you know the days of yore. When you were working on turning uh, the story in, into a novel for Hard Times, how does how is your writing process? Do you um, tend to write organically? Do you sit down and plot? What is the actual writing like for you? I write, well, basic, my process for novels is they have to germinate as an idea for, say, eight to 10 years before I even begin to write them. I don't just start out writing something. And I do I do have a, an outline. I, I'm not a pantser at all, but it's not an outline like most people think of. It's not that Roman numeral page after page of plot points and everything. It's uh, It consists of five statements, and the uh, t- total word count is 15, 16 to 24 words. I have an online class for novel writers, and I insist they write a similar outline because I don't know how, if I was going to drive to Alaska, I would get a roadmap. I wouldn't just start driving because I want to get there in a reasonable time and, and <laughs> you know, not have to pay a fortune in gas driving all over the universe. But I have to think about it for about eight, 10 years. And when it finally comes together for me, I do an outline, but I really don't need it because I've already written it in my head several times. So I know that you have written books about writing and you mentioned this online writing class. Given that and the amount that you've written both novels and screenplays, what writing advice would you offer for those who might be listening who are working on their own stories and novels and trying to get published? Basically, boy, the main advice I would give, I'll steal from Jim Harrison, one of our best novelists. And he said, if you want to be a writer, you need to read the whole of Western literature for the past 400 years. And if time permits, the same period in Eastern literature, because if you don't know what passed for good in the past, 
you don't know what's good now. And I totally agree with that. I think if you're not a reader, I don't see how you can become a writer. You can be, you can get stuff published and not even be very good nowadays, but you're still not a writer. Uh, you just have to read a lot. That's where the main education comes, I think. I've got an MFA, but that and 50 cents, I'd rather have the 50 cents. <laughs> so do you still read a lot yourself? Oh, yeah. I read three to five novels every week I have all, all my life. Can you tell us one or two that you've read recently that you really enjoyed? Yeah, I uh, just read another one of Joe Lansdale's uh, books. Real, uh, I I'm bad on titles, but it's, oh boy, it's something about girls in a car, but it was just dropped, it was laugh out loud funny, and I'm reading, oh gosh, what am I reading? I'm reading all kinds of stuff. I have a, a, I read electronically anymore, because it's, I never thought I'd go that way, but I much prefer that to hardcover now, it's just easier, but I, yeah, well, I'm sorry, I should have turned my damn phone off. Not a problem. So, are you working on another novel now? Yeah, I'm working on two, maybe three more right now. I'm always working ahead on something, but I'm 77, so who knows when the light's going to go out. So <laughs> I got to hustle and get them in there. I'm I'm writing one now. I really I've been writing for a few years off and on about a hitman, but he's uh, a different uh, brand of hitman. He makes all his hits look like accidents. It's going to be a primer for somebody who wants to commit the perfect crime because these <laughs> really are perfect. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. I should probably sell them to the outfit or something and make more money that way. Well, well, you you mentioned earlier about having your first novel in print in, in Ireland or an, with an Irish publisher. Has there been a good reception to some of your novels overseas? Because I know that there's definitely an appreciation for American noir novels. Yeah, I've had probably, I have more fans in Europe and in those parts than I do in America, probably, at least equal amounts. I've got uh, a couple of my novels published in Italian and German and uh, working on Japanese company, just contact a former agent of mine. They want to take on Hooked and uh, publish a copy of it. It's one of my writing textbooks. Yeah, my German publisher's got three of them. He's looking at an, he's looking at Adrenaline Junkie now for the fourth one they want to publish. And I'm in Italian. I need to get in, in French. That's the language I really want to get in. If someone is interested in learning more about you and your novels, do you have a website or somewhere they can find you online? Yeah, I've got a I've got a blog. It's www.lessedgertononwriting. Uh, God, I'm sorry. I'll go hide that someplace. Les Edgerton on writing, uh, blogspot, uh, dot com backslash. Great. Again, we've been speaking with Les Edgerton, author of the new novel, Hard Times. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Les, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you. Great. If, if, you, if people want to send me candy or liquor, I'll take liquor. <laughs> now, stay tuned as Les Edgerton reads from his new novel, Hard Times. 
Hard Times by me. Arithmetic Prize. Once in Miss Wexler's third grade, Amelia Laxalt won the Arithmetic Prize. She got a certificate and a gold fountain pen from Miss Wexler and a bloody nose from Arnold Christen, who caught her on her way home, jumping out from behind a thicket of blackberry bushes along Boudreaux Creek, about a mile from her place. Before she knew what was happening, he hit her, grabbed the paper, and ripped it in two. Why'd you do that, she said, getting back up, brushing dirt off her skirt with one hand, wiping blood off her nose on the back of her other arm. She doubled up her fist and took a step toward the boy. Cuz, Arnold said, stupid girl. He glared at her and threw down the pieces of the certificate and ran back the other way toward his own home. Later, out in the privy, she taped it back together and put it in the shoebox she'd hidden out in the woodshed. The next morning, a Saturday, she worked in silence with her mother, taking the shirts her mother needed on the scrub board to squeeze out in the rinse tub and put them in a basket to be hung up. When her mother leaned back on her stool for a moment, legs splayed, wiping her forehead with the hem of her dress, she ran to the shed and got the certificate and the pen. Here, she said, thrusting the minted paper at her. Her mother wiped her face again and pushed up off her stool to stand and read it, a smile gradually softening her mouth as she labored through the words. Amelia held the gold fountain pen up high, and the light caught it, and both she and her mother gasped at the beauty of it. Read it, Mama, she said, handing it to her. The pen, she stammered, is might, mightier than the sword. That, that's from the Bible, she said. No, Mama, Miss Wexler said it was from a play. An Englishman wrote it. What's it mean, girl? I'm not sure, Mama. Later that night, after her father shoveled the last bite of red beans and rice into his mouth and scoured the plate with a piece of cornbread, he told her she was done with school. What boy would marry a little smart aleck, he said, cheeks bulging with cornbread. You can read, that's enough. He crumbled up the certificate and stuck it in his pocket. She knew better than to say anything. Later that night, when everyone was asleep, she crept into her parents' room, found her father's trousers hanging over a chair, retrieved her certificate, and hid it under her pillow with the gold pen that she hadn't shown him. On Monday morning, she went out to the fields with him. He never knew she cried herself to sleep the two nights previous. She did everything he asked once accidentally slicing the back of her forearm with the machete, cutting sugar cane. He laughed and told her to spit on it. Rub it in, it'll quit. I ain't gonna kiss it and make it well like your teacher does, he said, in that voice of his, like a sob biting through thick oak planking, and she did. She didn't cry then, and she didn't cry after that for a long time. She dreamed the oddest dream that night, of a huge black man and a machete. She knew she was dreaming, and she made no effort to wake up. She didn't know what the dream meant, and she wanted to understand it. Dreams were important in her family, not for the men's, not the men's so much, but the women's. Her grandmother and her mother both had dreams, and they often foretold important things in the future. She hadn't known her grandmother's as she passed away when she was two years old, but she retained an image of her, an old woman with long white hair and a mole on her chin with an enormous black hair that sprouted from it. Not a clear picture, more like an image viewed through cheesecloth or plastic sheeting. She talked with her mother, and her mother assured her it was the correct image. 
Her mother suggested she'd seen a photograph of her, but no such photograph existed when they looked for one. Her mother thought there had been one at one time, and it, it had just become lost. Two-year-olds don't remember like Amelia claimed she had, she said. In her dream, she was running, and it was always the dark of night. All around her were flashes of red, like the eruptions of a volcano, and there were black trees on all sides. Loud barking, barking from dogs filled the air. Just before she woke up, a giant of a black man appeared in her path. He was wielding a huge machete. And then the machete materialized in her own hand, and that was the last image she recalled when she woke up and thought about her dream. She didn't know if the man was there to save her or destroy her. She didn't know why there were dogs in the dream. They didn't own a dog, and she never thought about dogs when she wasn't in her dream. But there they were, and she didn't understand why. It was a dream that returned again and again through, through the years. There were other bits added to it in later versions, but the main action remained the same. She never learned if the black man was her savior or her executioner. She never knew what was chasing her, but she knew it was something evil and malignant. Awake, she wondered if the black man was hunting her like her father hunted rabbits, with a dog that would chase her in circles until she passed by him with a shotgun or, in the black man's case, a machete. Maybe that's why there were dogs in the dream. The other thing that was puzzling was that when she woke, she felt oddly at peace. Her mother had no answer for that either, except she thought it was a sign that the black man was there to somehow help her, perhaps. There were many mysteries in life, and Amelia assumed this is just one more of those. The Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro FM. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 185,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a different story one that supports your local community and your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. You can listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Here's your special offer from the Reading and Writing Podcast. Get two audiobooks for the price of one today with your first month of membership with the code RWPODCAST at checkout. This offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S., Check out Libro.fm today. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, 
planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.